0: Our text tonight. We'll start reading in Genesis one and see how far we get. <laughs> no, just kidding. But we did start this. Uh, we did start this series last week uh, that we're going to be going through for some time now, where we're looking at the whole Bible, and we're, uh, we'll get into generations of the Bible each week. Right? We're going to look at a book each week, and so next week uh, we'll get into Genesis, and we'll uh, the sermon next week is on Genesis, and then the sermon the week after that will be on on Exodus, and we'll just do one be one book per week. Last week, though, we started out with kind of an introduction of, of the whole Bible. What's the message of the whole Bible? What is the, the good news of the whole Bible? Um, and tonight, we're going to kind of do the same thing, but we're just going to look at the Old Testament. How does the, how, how does the Old Testament fit within the whole Bible? What is the message of the Old Testament? What is the, the good news of, of the Old Testament? Okay? And so the Old Testament, as you probably know, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, that's uh, just right under 60% of the whole Bible. So the Old Testament is bigger than the New Testament. Um, there were probably about 30 different authors that, <coughs> excuse me, there were about 30 different authors that, that wrote the Old Testament. Um, many of them had different professions. Some were shepherds, some were prophets, uh, some were uh, political leaders in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and, and so many different professions, different backgrounds, different education levels, very very diverse group of, of people who wrote these books. Um, and, and like we talked about last week, they were written over about a 1,500-year time span. So think about how much language changes over 1,500 years, how much culture changes over 1,500 years, um, how much technology changes in, in that amount of time. And so all that was happening within the course of... Um, writing the Old Testament, so there's lots of, of diversity, if you will, in the Old Testament. There's there's lots of, of differences in the Old Testament. There's different words that are used early in the earlier books than they are in the older in the later books, right? Because of, of how language changes, and sometimes words change their meanings over time, and and so you got to you gotta think about all that as you're as you're reading through the Old Testament. But there's a lot of lot of um, uh, of of diversity uh, in, in the Old Testament. Um, however, there's also a lot of unity in the Old Testament. And we talked last week about how there's unity in the whole Bible, uh, but there, there's unity in the Old Testament. And so we're going to try to look tonight and see what is the, if you take all the books of the Old Testament together, um, what is the overarching message um, to be picked of the New Test, of the Old Testament, and then where does it leave us at the end of the Old Testament um, to be picked up in the New Testament? So one thing we talked about last week was I, I, I told you some uh, statistics from this Lifeway Research Study uh, from 2017. And if you remember, one of the questions that we talked about last week was, uh, which of the following described the Bible? Okay, and so I guess it was multiple choice maybe and people could choose. And so uh, some, a few said, not sure. 7% said they think the Bible is, is harmful. Uh, 8% said they think the Bible is bigoted. 14% said they think it's uh, outdated. 34% say that they think it's a story, uh, like just a story, not necessarily true, but just a story. Uh, 35% say that it's life-changing, 36% say that it's true, Uh, 37% said that it's helpful today. Obviously, I guess they could pick multiple things, because that's way more than, that's going to be more than 100%, right? Uh, 38% said that they thought it was historically accurate, Uh, and then 52%, the biggest group, most people chose this answer, they said that it's a good source of morals. Okay, a good source of morals. And surely the Bible is a good source of morals, right? There's moral teaching in the Bible, and, and, and we get our morality and, and, and our ethics from, uh, from the Bible, from God's word. And, and yet, uh, it, this I think is especially true of the Old Testament. I think sometimes when people look at the Old Testament, even when, when, when people that have been believers for a long time look at the Old Testament, that's kind of all they see. It's just kind of stories uh, even if we think it's true it's it's historical stories it, it's history um, and, and maybe we can use them for examples to ourselves examples of how to live today or in some cases maybe examples of how not to live today uh, if in, in stories where people did things that were that were wrong um, but but I'm I want us to, to look at it tonight and, and hopefully we're going to see tonight that it is much more than that. It is that, but it's much more than that, and even the Old Testament is much more than that. It's not just a, a, a set of s- historical stories that teach a moral lesson like uh, like, a, like Aesop's Fables or something like that, it, it, it's not. It's all the books throughout the whole um, Old Testament. And so I want us to look at <coughs> um, Luke chapter 24 to get started tonight. This was our, our call to worship, Luke chapter 24, uh, and this this first part we're going to look at is after Jesus's resurrection, uh, and the disciples are gathered together, and Jesus appears. But no, I'm not a ghost, right. And you remember from the from the call to worship, they were frightened. They said, "We've seen a ghost." And Jesus says, "No, I'm not a ghost. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. Touch my hands, feel my side. I have flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost." Right. And then he says, "I'm hungry. You got something to eat?" And so they cooked some fish for him and ate some fish. But then look at what he says to them, in verse. Um, Verse uh, 40. No, just kidding. Verse uh, 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, that's significant because in our English Old Testaments, we tend to kind of divide it up between the law and then the history and the prophets and the poetry and, and some apocalyptic and, and Ezekiel and Daniel and some others, right? And so we have these different divisions. In, in the Hebrew Old Testament, they have three divisions. They divide the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible into three divisions. The Torah, which means law, so that's the first five books. Uh, the Nevi'im, which means prophets. And so that includes what we think of as prophets. It's like Isaiah, Jeremiah, those prophets. But the prophet section also includes the history books. They consider that part of the part of the prophets also. And then they have the writings, which is the poetry: Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, di- different books that are predominantly poetry, right? The, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the and the, Ketubim, the, the law, of the prophets, and the, and the writings. And so listen to what he says. He says, beginning with Uh, I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so what Jesus is saying is that the whole Bible is about him. The writings are about, I mean, the law is about him. The writings of Moses are about him. The the prophets are about him. And the Psalms, which represent the writings, the poetry section, he's saying the whole Bible is about me. And then look what he did. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Okay. And if you go back even earlier on in, in chapter twenty four, uh, you know the you may know the story. After Jesus is resurrected. Um, there's two men are walking on a road to a town called Emmaus, and Jesus appears with them, but they don't know it's him, and they have this conversation, um, and then later he he reveals himself to them. So in that conversation, he's talking to them, and he's and he's asking them like what he's he's kind of playing dumb, and he's like what are y'all talking about? I couldn't couldn't help but over here. What are you talking about? And they say oh you're the only one in the whole world that doesn't know what just happened. And he's like no tell me, and so they tell him about the crucifixion. He's the one that just got crucified, but he's acting like he doesn't know and seeing what they'll say, right? But then he gets to verse 25, and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so two places in chapter 24 to two different audiences, to these two men that were walking into this town called Emmaus, disciples, he, he, he sat with them and said, let me tell you about the Old Testament. Let me tell you about the law of Moses. Let me tell you about the prophets. Let me tell you about the writings. Let me tell you how those things point to me, right? Because they couldn't understand what had happened. They were thinking, why did this man die? We were thinking he was going to be the king of Israel, right? And, 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 and Jesus saying, let me, let me explain to you how, what the Old Testament really says about me and who I am and what I'm really fulfilling, okay? So the Old Testament message is really telling this, this overarching story um, a, a, about Jesus, okay? And so it's not just examples to be followed or examples to be resisted uh, in, in, in the case of bad examples, but these stories are pointing to Jesus and telling us about, about God's plan for Jesus, okay? So think about last week when Joshua preached on uh, the story of Daniel and uh, sorry David and Goliath, right? And, and a lot of times people understand that as examples and we're supposed to be David and we're supposed to kill the Goliath in our life and, and all that kind of stuff, right? We just use that as, a, as an example of how we're supposed to be. Uh, and, and yet Josh helped us understand last week that that's not really what's going on there at all. Really what's going on there is that's a story about Jesus, how David and the people of Israel, uh, how they, they couldn't beat this big giant named Goliath, right? And they had to rely on the Lord to do it. And the Lord did come in and save them. And, and how the Lord has provided a savior in, in Jesus. Um, and, and, and we can think, talk about, I started, when I was planning this sermon, I started to, to just look at different examples like that and show, uh, show different examples of that and look at some different stories and see how they point to Jesus. I decided not to do that, but, but you know, Josh showed us that one last, last week. We can also think of a story like, um, uh, if you remember when, when Abraham, God had called Abraham and then he promised him he was gonna have a son and Abraham did have a son, named him Isaac. And then God told, told Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain and, and sacrifice him, right? And so Abraham took Isaac and got a big bundle of wood and got a torch with lit on fire, and he put the wood on Isaac's back and had him carried up the mountain. Uh, and at some point, Isaac's like, wait a minute, we got the wood and we got the fire and we got us. What, what, we, what is the sacrifice? What, what, what are we doing? He's ready to obey. Abraham said, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And so they get up on the mountain, and he ties Isaac down there. He's ready to obey. Um, And the book of Hebrews tells us that that Abraham believes that even if he kills Isaac, God can raise Isaac from the dead. Because Abraham knows God had promised him that he was going to have a son Isaac, and Isaac was going to have many, many sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, and God was going to create this whole nation out of his descendant Isaac. And so Hebrews says that, that Abraham believed if he killed Isaac, God could raise him back from the dead. But they, they get there, and he's got the knife up. He's ready to, ready to kill him. He's tied, uh, Isaac's tied on the altar, and, and God says, no, no, wait, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I was, I was testing you to see if you would obey. And then there's a ram caught in the, in the thorns, and they get the ram untangled, and they, and they sacrifice the ram instead, right? And, uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a moral story for us. It teaches us we should trust God, we should obey God, right? We should, we should do what he tells us even if it's really hard, we should do what he says even if we don't understand how it's gonna work out in, in the end, all those kind of things. But it's, but it's much more than that, right? It's a, it's a, it's a picture of how God is gonna, uh, is gonna provide a lamb to substitute for his people, right? Isaac should have been the sacrifice, but God provided a ram to substitute for him. We, should, we, should, we deserve death. Jake preached about that this morning. We deserve death because of our sins. That's the result of sin, right? When, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet God has provided a, a lamb, right? John says the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. God's provided the lamb, Jesus, to, to be a substitute for us. And so all these stories in the Old Testament and the, and the overarching themes of the Old Testament uh, are moving us toward, uh, pointing us toward Jesus, Okay. Remember last week I said we had the creation in the, in the very beginning, and then we had Genesis 3.15 where God makes that promise about how the, he's gonna, uh, the, the woman's going to have a descendant, and that descendant's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head, and God makes that promise in Genesis 3.15. And then the whole rest of the Old Testament is the story, or the, really the whole rest of the Bible, is, is the story, the history of God keeping that promise, right? And ultimately, he fulfills it in, in Jesus, Okay, so to do tonight is see individual stories like that and, and see how they point to Jesus, and that, that will be really helpful. But what I decided to do tonight instead is I want us to, to just think about uh, six themes that are, that are taught in the Old Testament. Okay? So six points tonight, six themes tonight, and there's, I, I'm not going to do a whole lot of, of talking, a whole lot of preaching. We're going to be reading a whole lot of Scripture. Okay, so I'm going to be turning into a lot of different passages to kind of show where these things show up in the in the Old Testament. But I want us to kind of get a handle on what the Old Testament teaches and and kind of the flow of the Old Testament, how the, where the Old Testament is is going. Okay, and so the first thing we see in the Old Testament, the first thing uh, the first theme that, that that we're taught in the Old Testament is that we should be holy. Okay, the Old Testament makes it clear, God makes it clear in the Old Testament that we should be holy. And we could talk a lot about what what the word holy means, but we but I don't want to. We don't have a lot of time to. So, just think about holy as, as pure, morally pure, righteous, right? Think about holy as uh, distinct, set apart, separate. Um, think about holy as devoted to the Lord, Th- those, those kind of things, right? And so, God, God says in the word that, that we're to be holy. This is a clear command from, uh, from the Bible. And so, you don't have to turn to all these places, but listen to what the Lord says in Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, uh verse 2, he says, uh, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for the Lord your God, uh, for I the Lord your God am holy. So God says, I'm holy, and you should be holy like me, right? So clear command where God says that the people should be should be holy. And we see very similar commands like that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verse 8. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. An interesting interesting thing about Exodus chapter 19 is that God is talking to the group, not just to individuals. And he says, you're to be a holy nation, right? Not just holy individuals, but a holy nation devoted to to me. Listen to what he says at the beginning of um, uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. He says, right before he gives the Ten Commandments, right before uh, Moses reads the Ten Commandments, he uh, he says this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself a carved image. You shall not be the name, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, And on through the Ten Commandments, right? And so sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments as God saying, here's what I want you to do, and if you do these things, then I'll be your God. If you do these things, then I'll be committed to you But that's not what the Ten Commandments say at all What the Ten Commandments say is At the very beginning, God says, I'm your God I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt I am your Lord, I'm the Lord your God Now, because I'm the Lord your God Here's how you should live Here's how you should act, right? And if if we think about the Ten Commandments uh, That's a picture of holiness Right? It's a very summarized picture and, and that kind of thing, but it's a picture of holiness. And so God's saying, I'm your God. You're my people. I've made you my people when I brought you out of Egypt. I'm making you in, into this nation. Here's how you're to live. You're to be holy. Uh, going back to, Exodus, or to Leviticus, you should be holy because I'm holy, right? So the first thing we see in the Old Testament, or one of the first themes that I want to point out from the Old Testament is that we should be holy, okay? And that's all in good so far. Um, However, the second theme that we see in the Old Testament uh, creates a conflict and, and puts us kind of in a bad position, puts us in a real bad position. Because point number one, we should be holy. Point number two, we can't be holy. Right? The Old Testament is clear that we cannot be holy. He commands us to, and we ought to, and we... Uh, we have an obligation to be holy. We have an obligation to be like the Lord. He created us in, in his image. He's made us his people. And so we have this obligation, um, and, and yet we're not able to fulfill the obligation that we have. Okay, As much as we try, we can't obey the commands uh, that, that God has given us. So, so look, at, look at a passage or listen to a passage um, as, as early on as like Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, this is the story of Noah and the flood. Y'all are familiar with that story? The ark is, is after the, the boat has landed, after the flood's over, the waters have, have receded. And so the ark is, is landing on, on the ground. And uh, uh, chapter 8, verse, verse 21. Uh, so they, uh, they make a sacrifice. They, they build an ark, and they offer a sacrifice. And then, and then God says this in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from the sacrifice... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God says, I'm not going to curse the ground again. I'm not going to have another flood. Remember, he gives the sign of the rainbow a little bit later on in that chapter, or maybe in chapter 9. But God says, I'm not going to do this again, even though the thoughts of men are evil from their youth. That's who we are, right? It's hard to be holy if you are evil by, by nature, right? It's hard to do the right thing all the time if you are wrong on the inside. And Jesus talked about people that tried to do that, the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs, remember? Because you try to dress yourself up and look good on the outside, but on the inside uh, you're, you're, you're dead and, and, and rotting and, and those kind of things. And we're not, I'm not going to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, Jeremiah says that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, even to the point that we can't even know it. That's in Jeremiah 17.9. We can't even trust our own hearts, they're so wicked and deceitful. And our hearts lead us astray all the time and we think that we're doing something uh, good and righteous and for good, you know, pure reasons, um, pure motivations, and, and yet we're not, our heart, our heart is deceitful, is wicked. You hear someone say, just follow your heart, that's terrible advice, don't follow your heart, follow what God says, right? So that's, that's Jeremiah 17.9. And then two other passages, one is in uh, Psalm chapter 53, Psalm 53, this is um, David writing, I believe, uh, Yeah, of, of David, and he says in verses 2 and 3, chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who are corrupt, who seek after God. They have all fallen away, together they have been corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Right, that's pretty, pretty comprehensive, pretty all-encompassing. God says there's not even one person who does what's right, not even one person who does what's good. And so we're evil. Uh, the, the, we're called to be holy, but we, but we can't be holy. We're sinful, right? Jake preached about this this morning. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we're now fallen into corruption, and we're influenced by evil desires. And, um, and the last passage uh, is Judges chapter 8. Listen, if you know the story of Judges, uh, Judges was a time in Israel's history where they didn't have a king, um, and, and Moses had died, Joshua had died, and so uh, Israel was living in the Promised Land, but they kept turning away from the Lord, okay? They'd turn away from the Lord, they'd, they'd, and, and then God would send punishment on them, this, this other nation would come and take them over, and then got, they would cry out to God, and God would send a judge or deliverer, and that person would lead them in a, in a victory and, and get their freedom back and turn them back to the Lord. they worship the Lord. And one of those men was Gideon. He was one of the judges. And listen to what the book of Judges says about Gideon in, chap- in uh, chapter 8, verses 33 on down. It says, as soon as Gideon died, now Gideon is this man that God has raised up, that has saved Israel. Uh, he, he's led them back to the Lord. Uh, they're following him. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned, uh, turned again and hoard after the baals, and made baal bereath their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubo- uh, Jerubaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And this is the pattern in the book of, book of Judges, right? Uh, the people will turn away from God, and then, then they'll get in some trouble. And so they'll cry out to God and say, please help us. And God will send them a deliverer, a judge, to help them and to deliver them. And they'll turn back and worship the Lord. But then as soon as that judge dies, they turn away again, right, what was right in his own eyes. The, the, the key phrase in the book of Judges that there was no king, and so every done, everyone done what was right in his own eyes, right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's, there, there's, there's this, this, uh, this idea, this theme that's clear in the Old Testament that we can't be holy, right? We're messed up from the inside out, and so no matter how hard we try on the outside, we can't be holy. God calls us to be holy, but we can't be holy. We're not able to fully uh, measure up to the standard that he has set over us, okay? The third thing, though, that we see in the Old Testament, the third theme that we see is that God covers our unholiness. God covers our unholiness. He's gracious toward his people. He covers and removes uh, sin from his people, and he redeems his people. Okay? And we're going to see how he does that. But but listen to uh, to Psalm chapter 103, or Psalm number 103. Uh, 103 verse 12 says... Uh, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God calls us to be holy; we can't be holy, and yet God removes our sins from us. And we're going to talk about how He does that. It's not—it's not automatic. It doesn't happen uh, for every every person in every place all the time. But but there's a way that God removes the iniquity or the sins from His from His people. In Isaiah chapter 38. Um, The Lord through Isaiah says, uh, verse 17, he says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. The Lord's cast all the sins behind his back, so he doesn't see them anymore. They're not holy, right? This person speaking here, Isaiah, is not holy, and, and yet the Lord looks on him, doesn't look on his sin, but removes his sin from him, okay? In um, verse 20, Jake, in, in Genesis chapter 3 that Jake preached this morning, uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 20, Jake made a, made a point of this this morning, uh, the Lord takes animal skins and covers their nakedness, covers their shame, right? And that's a picture of God covering their sins, uh, removing their shame from them, removing their sin from them, covering it with animal skins. And, of course, uh, Jake made the point that in order for that to happen, the animal had to had to be killed, right? There was a sacrifice that happened. And so God offered this sacrifice, killed this animal, and took the skins and covered, uh, covered them with it. And so that, that takes us to Leviticus chapter, seven, uh, chapter uh, 16. We're going to read quite a bit from, from Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is, is uh, the instructions about the day, of, the day of the Passover. Not the day of the Passover, the day of atonement. Okay? And so in the Old Testament, God set up all this sacrificial system, and you would offer different sacrifices for different purposes. But every year, once a year, it was the Day of, of Atonement. Right? The Jewish people still celebrate it today. It's called Yom Kippur in, in Hebrew. You may have heard of that before, but it's, that's the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the, they would offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would cover, would remove the guilt uh, for the sins of the nation for that year. Okay, And so listen to chapter 16. Uh, I'm going to read several, several verses, kind of skip around a little bit, uh, but I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, Aaron, who was, the, who was the priest, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for uh, Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be com- uh, presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So there's these two goats. Well, first of all, he has to offer a sacrifice of bull to cover his own sins so that he's then able to offer a sacrifice for the people, Right. And so he does that. Then he takes these two goats, and he chooses one will be for the Lord, and one will be uh, he shall take uh, for Azazel. And I'm going to skip down to verse 14, where it says, uh, he shall take some of the blood of the bull uh, and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger uh, seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness." No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. So here's what's happening there. The priest, there's a very specific way that he has to do this, right? Uh, in, in a very specific order and, and all this kind of stuff. But what he's doing, he's taking the, the goat or the lamb that was uh, that was chosen for the Lord, and he's taking it into the, uh, into the, mo- the holy of holies, the center part of the temple where these... Uh, where these holy sacrifices are made, and he is killing that animal uh, on behalf of the people of Israel. It's a, an atonement for the people of Israel, removing their sins. They should be dying, but the animal's dying in their place, right? Instead of them suffering the, the, the consequences of sin, which is, or the punishment of sin, which is death, this animal is is, is suffering that on their, on their behalf, okay? He continues in verse 20, and then he, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember, there were two goats. He'll, he'll take the one that's still alive and Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And so this is like a, a kind of a symbolic transference, right? Put a hand on the head of the goat and he's kind of transferring the sins of Israel to that goat and uh, put his hand, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who was in readiness. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities. Picture, It's a, it's a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so this is a picture. It's a, it's a double picture, these two goats. The one is sacrificed, which is a, a symbol and a picture of, of the, the death that comes as a punishment for sin. And then the other goat, he lays his hands on the head of the goat, confesses the sins. It's a, it's a sim- symbol of transferring those sins onto the goat. And then they let the goat go into the wilderness. And that's a picture of what God said in the Psalms where, uh, where he says that he's taken my sins and he's uh, separated them as far as the east is from the west. He's taken my sins and put them behind me where he doesn't see them anymore, right? This is a symbol of them, this goat, running away with their sins. And so they're no longer there and they're no longer creating this barrier between them and God. And this was something they would do every year, over and over. And there were other sacrifices they would do during the year as well. But this was the the major sacrifice to remove sins, and they would do it every year. And so this is good news, right? Uh, God calls us to be holy. Bad news, we can't be holy. But the good news is God covers our unholiness. He covers our sin, removes our our sins from us. Okay. But number four, kind of bad news again, number four, we need a better covering. We need a better covering. The, the blood of bulls and goats, uh, the sacrificial system was never meant to take away sins. It wasn't. It was never meant to take away sins. So let's look at what it was meant for. And you can you can listen, that's fine. But Hebrews chapter 10, this is in the New Testament, uh, kind of toward the back of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, starting in verse 1. He says... For since the law has but a shadow, was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? He's saying that they're making these sacrifices over and over and over. They're doing this, this day of atonement every year, over and over and over every year. And he's saying if those sacrifices were really able to remove their sins, what right? Doing them. If they really took their sins away, last year, why do we have to do it again this year, right? If they really were effective. And then he says, um, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consequence, consciousness of sin? Verse 3 says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." He's saying two things here, right? He's saying, first of all, the sacrifices of animals, bulls and goats, can't take away sins. And the second thing he's saying is the reason that you're doing this over and over and over is this is God's way of reminding you that you have sins. This is God's way of reminding you that you need a sacrifice. You need something to take your sins away. You need something to cover your sins, right? You have this need in your life. It's a reminder year after year, uh, even, even week after week or day after day as they are making these other sacrifices that they need um that they, they 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 need to have their sins removed. Okay, so we should be holy. We can't be holy. God covers our holiness, our unholiness. We need a better covering. And then number five is good news again. A better co- a better covering is coming. A better covering is coming. We need a better cover, covering. A better covering is is coming. So I'm not going to read uh, some of these for the sake of time. But in in Second Samuel chapter seven, God meets with David. And he makes David this promise, this covenant. David was the king of Israel. And David wanted to build a, a, a temple for the Lord, a, a house for the Lord. And God said, no, but I'm going to build you a house. But it's kind of a wordplay. He meant I'm going to build you a family. And he said, you're going to have a king on the throne forever, and his kingdom will not end. Right? You have this king on the throne forever. Well, how is he going to have a king on the throne forever and his kingdom not ever end? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. In Ezekiel chapter 34, this is a really, really, really good passage. Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, verses 7 to 10, and then 15 to 16, and then 22 and 24, but really that whole chapter, really, really, really good chapter where God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's saying the leaders of Israel are taking care of my bad leaders. They're not taking care of of Israel. He's saying they're, they're, they're bad shepherds. They're not taking care of my sheep right? A metaphor for the people of Israel. And he goes over all this list of things that they've been doing, and they're, they're exploiting the sheep instead of taking care of them or providing for them and all these different things. And so at one point in, in the chapter, God says, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I'm against the shepherds, and I'm going to be against them because they're disobeying me, and they're not caring for my sheep, but they're exploiting my sheep. And so God says, you know what's going to happen? There's coming a day where I'm going to come down, and I'm going to shepherd my sheep myself, and I'm going to be a good shepherd to them, right? Reminds me of Psalm 23, the... Uh, you know, the uh, the Lord is my shepherd, right? It reminds me of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But God says there's going to a day, there's going to a day come where he's going to come down and be a better shepherd than these other shepherds have been. And then I do want to read two passages real, real quickly. Um, one is in Isaiah chapter chapter 53. Isaiah 53 says this. I'm just going to read, I'm going to kind of jump around and read parts of it. So, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy about this, this suffering servant that's going to come later. He says, He surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin or the disobedience of us all. And then skip down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offsprings. He shall, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will pro- shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish, out of his soul, he shall be seen and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We could think of holy there, right out of out of this one's holiness that's coming, he will make like we're supposed to be holy, for real holy, right? like we're supposed to be, not like we can't be, but like we're supposed to be. Uh, I lost my place. Uh, by his knowledge shall be the, shall the holy the righteous one, my servant make many to be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so God says, there's there's a day in the future where this this suffering servant's going to come, and he's going to suffer. For the sins of my people, he's going to take the sins of my people on himself and remove them from my people, and and he's going to be killed. He's going to take them. He's going to be crushed. He's going to be put to death. He's going to take the sins of my people. And so then we get to John chapter one in the New Testament, uh, and 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 we've got some of some of uh, uh, some people coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, and and Jesus walks up, and I think maybe they ask him who is Jesus, uh, and 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 however the conversation go, Jesus or John. Uh, responds and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? This sacrifice back in Leviticus that you're supposed to sacrifice this goat to this, this lamb every year to take your sins away, and yet Hebrew says the, that blood, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, and then here comes Jesus, and John says, behold, this is the true lamb of God. This is the one that all these other sacrifices were pointing to. That yeah, these we're offering these sacrifices. There's a substitute for our sins, but it's not a perfect substitute, and it can't really take our sins away. It's just a reminder that we need someone to need someone to need someone to, and here's Jesus, the one that really does it, right? So so one we uh, we should be holy. Two we can't be holy. Three God covers our holiness. Four or our unholiness. Four we need a better covering. Five, a better covering is coming. And then finally, six, there's this theme in, in in the Old Testament, especially toward the end of the Old Testament, and we see it a lot in the Psalms. So I, I just want to look at a couple of Psalms here uh, to help us see it. There's this, 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 this longing of, God, when is this going to happen? When are you going to keep your promises? You promise you're going to send this servant who's going to take away our sins. You're going to send this servant to take away sins. He re- for our iniquities and, and remove them for good. Uh, he's not like the blood of bulls and goats that can't take away sins. He really is going to take away sins for good. But, but there's this, this lament, this crying out, Lord, how long is this going to be? How long do we have to wait? And so listen to, to Psalm, uh, Psalm number 6, uh, verses 3 and 4. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And then in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There's this, this anticipation, this longing, this wanting, this desire for God to do what he said he was going to do, right? So these, these six themes go through the Old Testament. We should be holy. We can't be holy. God covers our, our unholiness or our sinfulness, but we need a better covering. A better covering is coming. And then the Old Testament ends with this longingness. How long is it going to take? When is it going to happen? When is it going to come? And so a couple things for us to think about uh, as, as, we, as we close here. The first one is that the Bible is one book. We talked about this last week. The Bible is one book unified under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament is telling one big story. And so the Old Testament is part one of the story, right? It's not finished until the New Testament. So the Old Testament ends with this longing. How long is it going to be? When are you going to do these things? And then we get to the New Testament and we see God doing them. We see God answering that, long, that, that longing prayer. And then the second thing that, that I want us to think about is as we read and study the Old Testament, we should be reminded... <laughs> excuse me, we should be reminded that God has proven himself faithful. As we, as we look back on the stories in the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament, God has already done those things. God has kept those promises that he made. And so as we read those, 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 uh, those stories, those histories, we should be reminded that God has, has done those things. He's proven himself faithful and he remains faithful today. He's done what he promised he would do. He's made a way to fix two problems highlighted in the Old Testament. He's, way to, he's made a way to take away our sins and cover our unholiness, and he's also made a way to, and he has made us holy. He's done both. He's taken our sinfulness away, taken our unholiness away, and he has made us holy, made us righteous in, in Jesus. He's done this in Jesus. And then the third thing I think that, that we, should, we should think about is we're in a very similar position as, uh, as the people in the, in the end of the Old Testament right, where they're crying out, how long, when are you going to do these things, right? We're in a very similar position today that they were in then, because we're looking to the promise of God sending back his son, Jesus, to make all things right. And we're in the same position, longing, or we should be at least, if we're thinking rightly about it, we should be longing for God to fulfill that promise and send the Savior back and establish his kingdom here on, here on earth, and, and that we would be with him, and he would be with us, and all those, all those things that, that God has promised to us. We should be longing for those things, But then we should also take comfort in the Old Testament because, again, God has proven his faithfulness time after time after time, and so we can trust his faithfulness now. We can trust that he will come back, that he will return, uh, that he will be our our shepherd. He will be our God, our king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for uh, for the Bible. Thank you for for speaking to us and for telling us about yourself and telling us about your plan and telling us about what you've done in the past and what you're going to do in the future. And what you're doing right now, And God, we thank you for that. I pray that you would make us more mindful of uh, of your Bible, Father. Make us more mindful of the Old Testament and how it, uh, how those books in the Old Testament all fit together, uh, and then how they fit together with the with the rest of the Bible, the New Testament as well. How they point us to Jesus and show us that uh, that you're doing something. You made us a promise back in Genesis three fifteen, and the Old Testament is this story of how you're slowly unfolding your plan of how you're gonna how you're gonna keep that promise. And God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that as we're thinking back on, on your faithfulness over, uh, over thousands of, of years with the, in the Old Testament, God, I pray that that would lead us to, uh, to trust in you and trust in your faithfulness now as we're longing and waiting for our Savior to return. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank you for how much we know about him from the Old Testament. Means for Jesus to be a background that gives us more information about who he really is. We wouldn't know that Jesus, we wouldn't know what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God if we didn't know the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and, and so many more things like that. And so, God, I, I pray that you would uh, strengthen us in him as, as we study your Bible. Father, strengthen us together as your church as we study your Bible together um, and, that, and that you would uh, send your son back quickly. And Father, we long for that. We wait for that. God, keep us faithful in the meantime. God, we thank you for Jesus and pray these things in his name. Amen.